I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Professor Patricia Churchland from the University of California at San Diego. And uh, she's going to read us a paper entitled The Relation Between the Neurobiology of Morality and Religion, although here it appears to be called Morality in the Social Brain. And um, then we're going to have a commentary by Professor Julian Savalescu of Oxford. So, Patricia. Great. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you both Russell and Steve for arranging this and, and for asking me to come. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Um, the title is a bit different from what's, uh, what's printed on the forum. I think Russell said, do you think you can say something about religion when I gave him this title? And I think I wrote back and said, yes, oh, probably. Um, but it really is mainly not a talk about religion. So what I'm really interested in is how it is that certain animals are social. What makes them social in the sense that they live together, they sometimes do things for one another, and so on. I am mainly going to talk about mammals because I think that the story in mammals is almost certainly different from uh, the story in fish or social insects. It may turn out to be quite similar to the story in birds, um, but not, a known, not enough is really known yet about birds and uh, about bird uh, neurophysiology or bird neuroendocrinology for me to say very much. So at this point, I'm really going to limit myself to mammals. So one question that one might have at this point is what can science teach us about the nature of morality? And in, in my view, there are many sciences that can contribute to this. And um, certainly evolutionary biology, in a way, is paramount here because whatever story we tell about morality has to be consistent uh, with evolutionary biology. Where I shall focus most is on neuroscience and neuroendocrinology. This is not a, a dreadfully good slide, but it helps uh, remind us that, of course, we have a very long evolutionary past. Um, on, on this <laughs> axis, we have uh, years and millions, and it's really meant to depict the fact that, of course, there were many kinds of hominins, and uh, they originated in Africa. Uh, humans also, uh, that is Homo sapiens, appeared to have originated in Africa. We overlapped with the Neanderthals for at least 10,000 years, and there's now some evidence uh, that there was a certain amount of interbreeding. What we do know about cranial size from about 2 million years ago to Homo sapiens is that it got really quite a lot larger. So the cranial size down here is about 400 cc's. By the time you get to us, it's about, on average, between 1,300 and 1,500 cc's. So there was a great expansion, and in humans, uh, the expansion seems to have been largely to do with frontal cortex, but that's something of a simplification. Certainly, we do know that prefrontal structures uh, greatly expanded. My hypothesis, um, based on mainly neurobiological and neuroendocrinological data, is that uh, there has been selection in mammalian species for sociability. It differs greatly amongst species, however, so that beavers may be social in a way that's very different from meerkats. 
At the hub of this story is a very simple and very ancient peptide found in all vertebrates, and probably much, uh, much more ancient than that, and that's oxytocin. It's a simple peptide in that it has only nine amino acids. It differs from its sibling peptide, vasopressin, in just two places. Um, that, uh, that the role of sociality in, in social animals, particularly social primates, but others, is based on this intricate network involving oxytocin, vasopressin, the endogenous hormone, uh, opiates, and many other things. Um, but it's also augmented by the reward system, and that's often a part of the story that's left out. The reward system is extraordinarily powerful, and I'll have more to say about it later. In large-brained uh, mammals, including wolves and dogs and, and primates, there is an elaboration of prefrontal structures. Now, uh, I, the, the caveat here, of course, is that we don't know very much yet about executive function and how executive function is managed by prefrontal structures. What we do know is that prefrontal structures are associated uh, with executive function. We also think that, but, but, uh, that we also think that intelligence is associated with the expansion of prefrontal structures but we don't know what the story is. We do not know what it is about our big fat brains that makes us smart. And that's partly because there are certain very fundamental questions in neuroscience which remain unanswered. Uh, questions having to do with the nature of information processing and also fundamental questions about how the brain is organized. Um, Darwin, as, as we all know, was interested in this question of uh, sociality. And he conjectured that our moral sense or conscience, which I, I, I like very much, is based on social instincts, which I'll talk about, habits, the reward system plays its role, and reason, which we might uh, call, and I will call, uh, problem solving. It's very interesting for those of, of you who are philosophers to realize that Hume said basically the same thing and that Aristotle said basically the same thing, and I think Owen might tell us uh, that Confucius did also. Uh, okay, so the hypothesis that I'm interested in then is that attachment and trust are the platform for moral values, and that they are in a sense the dispositions that contour social problem space. And I'll elaborate this in a moment. That is, if you think of uh, there being, of course, problems that arise as a result of sociality in group competition, as well as just kind of not liking everybody and having to deal with them, um, there are social problems that arise with regard to such things as resource distribution and reconciliation after conflict. And there is a problem space, and that shape of that problem space is partially contoured by these fundamental social urges, the need to belong uh, in particular. <clears throat> uh, and that they constitute the motivation to find workable solutions uh, to practical problems. This is not unique to humans. We see this in social mammals generally. And many social mammals have been studied at, uh, both in the field and in the laboratory 
Um, and there are wonderful results concerning baboons, chimpanzees, a variety of species of monkeys, uh, meerkats, and so forth. Now, of course, culture is going to turn out to be an essential part of the whole story of human morality. But it's not a part of the story that I'm going to address. I think there are many wonderful books uh, that one, one, one uh, can go to, as well as the work of social psychologists, uh, political scientists, and others. Now, one way to sort of think about the problem first, before we talk about sociality in general, is to ask, how is it possible for neurons to value anything? I mean, what is it for neurons to value something? And I think the basic answer, first coming from Jacques Panksepp uh, and his wonderful work at, with rats, is that fundamental value for all living things, or at least for all things with a significant nervous system, depends on having circuitry such that it maintains parameters that are necessary for survival. And so in the case of uh, our vertebrates then, the brainstem organizes so that when there is a, when a certain parameter such as level of glucose or level of water falls below a safe level, uh, the animal is organized to go and get water. But it, of course, is complicated because sometimes there are conflicts between value, between, say, um, wanting uh, to eat and wanting to reproduce, or wanting to eat and needing to flee from a predator, and so forth. And it turns out that brain stem structures are really well organized and well configured in terms of their neuroanatomy uh, to handle those kinds of things. And so, the way Panksepp puts it, and later Antonio Damasio, is that really the fundamental value of well-being and survival is already there in all kinds of vertebrates who have the organization to care about themselves, to care about their own well-being and their own survival. Uh, even in us, of course, the, and by us I mean all uh, animals that have significant <laughs> cortex, the subcortical structures continue to play a hugely important role. This is a, a slide from Joseph Parvizzi, uh, who wanted to make the point that we often imagine that cortical structures are kind of the be-all and the end-all, and of course they're not. Um, and here he indicates the many connections between structures like the brainstem, the periaqueductal gray, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and then on up to the cortex. So that it's not that we are essentially cortical animals, although our cortex does allow us to do uh, various interesting things. All right. Now, so what's the story then about mammals? If the fundamental values of well-being and survival are embodied in brain stem structures that keep vertebrates alive, um, we can see a fairly straightforward story in terms of evolution, uh, evolutionary biology, how that would happen. Self-neglect is disadvantageous, self-care is advantageous. But how is it, you might ask, that we end up caring for others? Many social mammals have a social structure where they do care about and cooperate with others. 
even if they don't have a moralizing God, amazingly enough. So the question is, how are their brains organized such that they do this? Paul McLean, many years ago, he was at NIH, uh, made this observation that with mammals, certain things are new. Now, that's quite apart from the other thing that we know that's new, and that is cortex. The, of course, between um, it, living things like lizards and living synapsids like us, uh, there were many other kinds of organisms, and their soft brains, of course, decayed, so we don't really have a story of how their brains were organized. So, uh, in the case of lizards, they don't really have a cortex. They have a kind of organization of cells that, if you looked hard, might constitute a sort of two-layer two thing. But in, in all mammals, what we have is this highly structured six-layer cortex. Now, that's not the only thing that's new about it, is this an anatomical structure. And as Paul McLean pointed out, what's new with mammals is certain interesting kinds of behavior that you don't see in a lizard or a frog. Nursing and parental care, playful behavior, separation, vocalization, and mate attachment. Now, what, what McLean realized, but this was later studied in great detail by neuroendocrinologists, was that there were, in mammals, in order that there should be tending of the defenseless, helpless offspring, there was tremendous rewiring of the subcortical structures. To a first approximation, what happens is that during pregnancy, oxytocin is sequestered. And this is now for, for simple mammals like, like mice, uh, is sequestered in the hypothalamus. At uh, delivery, it, the, there is release of oxytocin as well as many other things, including prolactin. And it aids with the delivery of the offspring. And then during lactation, oxytocin is essential for milk ejection. But that isn't the only sort of mechani uh, mechanistic thing that oxytocin does. It's also released to other parts of the brain. So it's not a neurotransmitter in quite the ordinary sense it's kind of released and diffuses quite broadly. And part of what happens in all mammals, including us, is that when there is release of oxytocin, there tends to be a lowering of the stress hormones and a general sort of feeling that things are as they should be, as you might say. Now, this ensures that there is nurturing and tending of the helpless offspring, but that's not the only major change. Um, okay, so the other major change, and this is what um, Paul McLean picked up on in his observation about distress calls, the other major change is to the pain system. And you take the, the pain system that's there in reptiles, but you modify it slightly so that pain is felt when the offspring fall out of the nest or when the offspring make distress calls or when the offspring are threatened. And then uh, pleasurable effects probably uh, involving not only oxytocin but also the endogenous opiates uh, kick in when, they're the, when they are reunited. It also appears to be the case that grooming and licking of the offspring is extremely important. 
important for the general development, structural development of the nervous system of, of the infant, but it also feels very good to the infant. Moreover, the infant, of course, feels fear and pain when it's separated from the mother. Panksepp makes the uh, hypothesis, which I think is interesting, but we don't know whether it's true, that part of the change in mammalian brain, so that I not only care about me, but care about these others, namely these offspring others, and feel pain at separation, is a modification of that system that we see in many, many vertebrates, where they like being in a familiar place and they feel anxious, their stress hormones go up when they're in an unfamiliar place. So it's not that it's necessarily a radically new evolutionary development in terms of brain organization, but it is quite different. So at this point then, I've given you a very fast account of the changes in the mammalian brain, but the important part is that it's geared to offspring and that it involves pain with separation and pleasure with being together, with belonging. And this gives you a basic account of how you get within a reasonable evolutionary story of how you get from me to me and mine. It's as though the homeostatic ambit expands to include others. Now, it's not just that you consider the baby the same as yourself. Because a mother rat, for example, or a mother dog, will abandon the infants if uh, the situation is truly extreme, especially if there are others involved. Um, but that's why I've, I've uh, made it a slightly lighter shade of green. But that's the basic part of the story. So the hormones and the circuitry are organized uh, so that the mother uh, will, will do this. And uh, we see this, of course, in all kinds of mammalian offspring. Lactation is particularly interesting. Um, we know that the endogenous opiates are released during lactation. It's not, and I speak from personal experience, it's not that you feel high. Um, but what we do know is it feels, you know, you're content. But here's how we actually know, and that is that in rhesus monkeys, they were given naloxone, which is an opiate antagonist and binds to opiate receptors. And when you do that, the mother monkey becomes really quite unconcerned about the baby. And she doesn't really care. If the baby climbs up and nurses, that's fine. If it doesn't, that's fine too. It's as though she's not getting anything out of it. Um, and uh, so she doesn't do it. Now, of course, humans aren't just rats and we aren't just monkeys. And we know that in the case of humans, there can be a huge hormonal response even to an infant that's not one's own. However, you also see this in certain other mammals, including rodents, and I'll get onto that in a moment. So this just illustrates in, in a really oversimplified way, but a way that, that is perhaps memorable that the basic pain system gets organized and modified, the basic pleasure system gets organized and modified, and you get these changes in the mammalian brain. Now, that's the fundamental part of the story. Um, and there are additional parts. See, I think actually grooming is probably what Robin Dunbar suggested, and I think 
we continue as grown-ups to like to be groomed, so to speak, uh, but to like to be petted and around and touched and so forth, um, because it's simply an extension of the pleasure that we felt as infants, um, or as infant rats, as the, as the case may be. Okay. So social urges involve pleasure. Uh, there's pain when you have separation or when there is disapproval, when there's shunning, when there's ostracization. And we see shunning and ostracizing as an important form of punishment um, in, in essentially all mammals. But now I want to get to the part of the story that tells us, okay, so how do we get from mums that like babies to dads that like babies and dads that like the mums and to friends and perhaps uh, others. And here the story depends on something really interesting that we learned from prairie voles. And many of you will know this story, so I'll go through it quite quickly. There are many species of voles, that are these tiny little rodents with, with short stubby tails. And um, prairie voles shown here are very social. After the first mating, the male and female show very strong mate preference for the rest of their lives. They like to be together. It doesn't imply sexual exclusivity, but in some cases very close too. The father takes care of the pups, helps rear the pups. He guards the nest and he guards the mate. And by contrast, a very different species of vole, montane vole, for example, is quite different. They're not social, they don't hang around with each other, they don't show mate preference, the male takes no part of the rearing of the pups, there's no such thing as mate guarding. When this behavior was observed by Sue Carter, she asked this question, these guys are so similar, what's different in the brains such that these mate for life and these ones don't? Here you see a, a male guarding the nest. The answer came out of Larry Young's lab, um, in conjunction actually with Sue Carter and others. But basically the story turned out to be much simpler than you would expect. This isn't the whole story, but this is absolutely the crux of the story. All right, so what you're looking at here is a cross section of vole brain, taken a, a coronal section. OTR means oxytocin receptors, vasopressin receptors. Now, this is the montane vole. These are all males. Montane vole, prairie vole. And the big difference we're interested in happens right here. The nucleus accumbens, known to play an extremely important role in, in reward learning, has a high density of receptors for oxytocin in the prairie vole and not in the montane vole. And for vasopressin receptors, a high density in the prairie vole, in what's called the ventral pallidum, but not uh, in the montane vole. Now, so far, that's only a correlational story, but you can do all of the manipulations. So you take a nice little male prairie vole and you block his receptors. He doesn't show the behavior. He doesn't show after the first mating. He doesn't show mate attachment. He's not interested in the babies and so forth. You can also do it the other way, although for technical reasons it's been done with mice because there we know the genetics. So it looks like this is the crux of the story, but as I said, there are many other things that are going on here as well to explain mate attachment. Now the shift to from, from serotsids to synapsids, from let's 
roughly speaking, from, from reptiles to humans is huge, involving many, many genetic changes. The shift from caring about babies to caring about mates probably is quite small. And it's probably happened many times. Um, that's what the genetics is beginning to show at any rate. So let's talk a little bit more about oxytocin, uh, what it might do in humans, what it does in, in other animals, and what kind of a role it might actually play in sociality. As you know, I said at the beginning that my story depended on the idea that attachment and trust are the critical parts of the story of the platform for morality. So in experiments on voles and rats, also on monkeys and some on humans that I can talk about later, uh, we know that increasing levels of oxytocin decreases the defensive posture. So if an animal is wary of some other animal coming in, you increase the level of oxytocin and that tends to disappear. There uh, is uh, a source of, to a first approximation, an antagonistic relation between stress hormones like corticotrophin releasing factor and oxytocin. So CRF goes down, oxytocin goes up. And court levels are often a very good indication of what oxytocin levels are also. So autonomic arousal decreases, and we know that happens via uh, circuitry pathways going from the hypothalamus down into the brainstem. There are also pathways that go from the hypothalamic region where there are um, where oxytocin is released to downregulate activity in the amygdala, which is responsible for, amongst other things, uh, processing fear. And so it's sometimes described as a source of uh, safety signal. And this has been seen repeatedly, and, and the studies are, are uh, by no means complete, and the story uh, is, is by no means uh, a complete story. I should also mention, with regard to uh, mate selection and mate preference, that there, in, in mammals, it's thought to be between about 3 and 4% of the species show strong mate preference. Beavers, for example, I mean, who would have thought? Beavers. Uh, beavers do, baboons, chimpanzees do not. Marmosets do. They mate for life, and they're alloparenting. They're also the... the, the uh, the male is engaged in parenting as well. So it looks like the story is beginning to shape up in the following way, that self-care can extend to kin care. And of course, the, the, the Hamilton observations about that are going to be very important and why they do. The pain system extends to the social domain. And that's been studied in, in rodents. The expansion of the forebrain extends the anticipation and the prediction of events. So here's how that story looks. Um, you know, in, in neuroscience, we're sort of fond of making this simplified claim. Uh, it, it's not entirely uh, accurate, but it, it, its central idea is, and that is nervous systems do two things. They allow us to move, to behave, and they make predictions. And the importance of making predictions is that that informs the movement. It tells us what's going to happen 
next or what's going to happen if I do that as opposed to something else. And fancier and fancier cognition is all in the pay of better and better predictions, which is all in the pay of better and better movement and better and better behavior, roughly. And so the conjecture is that even with very uh, simple small-brained mammals like voles and mice, that it's important in a social context to be able to predict how others are going to act and what others are going to do. And that small-brained mammals almost certainly have a rather confined but very useful theory of mind, a theory of mind that can attribute goals and intentions to others. Now, it may not be fancy and it may not distinguish between embarrassment and guilt and shame and it may not be able to attribute beliefs and desires. That may come much later. And so the, the idea is then that part of what you get with expansion of forebrain structures is an increased capacity to predict what others are going to do if they think this and believe that and so forth. And of course, we saw a wonderful example of this right after the British election where there was all this jockeying for power and if he deceives me and, and my constituents know that, then blah, 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 blah. And I think uh, the idea that we have more than uh, five recursive steps in this is probably, uh, we probably don't. And of course, you also get a greater capacity in a way, as I said, we do not understand uh, for learning and problem solving. There is, of course, as we, have now, we now know, some evidence for uh, tool use in uh, non-human primates and certainly also in birds. Uh, but of course, it's come uh, to be quite spectacular in the case of humans. So the, the idea then is to make the next move, to go beyond me and mine, my babies and my mate, and to see whether or not small adjustments will allow for the expansion of caring to kith, that is, uh, to others in the group to whom I may not be uh, closely related or perhaps uh, I am somewhat related. Here I think the story is going to depend on what exactly we find out about various different kinds of social mammals. Baboon social life is just very different from marmoset social life, which is very different uh, from <coughs> dolphin and human social life. And how things are handled, such as punishment, which is going to turn out to be an important part of the story, is going to depend on the social ecology. Even at the level of humans, the theory is going to be that you will see despite the sort of common platform, you're going to see different cultural experiments, shall we say, or different cultural solutions to similar kinds of problems that will vary as a function of the differences in ecology. And so the Inuit, for example, will have a very particular way of solving certain kinds of conflict or of dealing with people who shirk their duties. That might be different from how that's solved uh, by the Hadza in Africa, for example. And so this is a pair of marmosets, uh, the baby peeking out there. It's interesting that in, in marmosets, you know, I don't know if you've seen marmosets, but they're really tiny. They look so big in this picture, but they're really <laughs> tiny. They're actually very interesting, evolutionarily speaking, because they must have had fairly big brains when they landed in South America 
but then over many, many generations, given their ecological conditions, uh, they've become much smaller, but their brains are still clearly, as it were, big brain. <laughs> They're still big brain mammals, even though they've got these tiny brains. Um, okay. So, so the style of sociality is going to vary as a function of ecological conditions. And here, of course, we have this social mammal that we all deeply love because they've got big eyes and kind of look human uh, and stand up on their hind legs. And this is a meerkat. He's doing sentry duty. And as you probably know, they rotate, the males rotate sentry duty. And so he's standing up, checking out. Meanwhile, the other ones are, are out and about playing. But they're very vulnerable to predators, and so they need sentries, um, and, they, and they have them. Now, um, I just also, I think it's really important to mention here. I know it's, so, it's such a beautiful picture, but I really have a serious point here. Um, we all know that orangs are solitary primates, and they, it always seems funny because most primates are not solitary. And um, one of the things that I think recent work in studying animal behavior in the field has taught us is that you have to observe animals for a long time. And when you do, you discover that some of the behavior that you see is really conditioned upon such things as resource availability. So when the orang has lots of resources and he doesn't have to compete for territory for food, he can be very social. And we now know this as a result of some wonderful work in New Hampshire uh, by a non-scientist who just loves bears. We now know this about black bears, that if the resources are available, I mean, I grew up in the bush, I thought I knew bears. And they seem to be very solitary, except the mums and the cubs. And as soon as the cubs are big enough, she gives them the boots, she's solitary. If the resources are available, they end up being quite social. And so we can, what's interesting about this, of course, is that we can see quite different behaviors emerge under quite different conditions. And this, it's always salutary to bear that in mind because we always want to say, oh, we see this behavior here, here, and here. It must be innate. Well, not necessarily. Um, so, all right, that's, okay. So, <laughs> there's been a little bit about moralizing gods. And it um, doesn't actually look like he's paying close attention, really. Uh, but in any case, um, what's kind of interesting, I think, is to look at social behavior and the policing of bad behavior in non-human primates. And the studies on punishment, I think, are quite revealing. And first of all, that punishment is usually an important part of the deal. And that you get punished for doing things that are socially unacceptable, like challenging the male, or like taking food from the alpha male. Um, you get punished um, in a variety of ways. Um, here's a story from Sapolsky. So in baboons, the young males leave the troop. And the, what they have to do to find a new home troop, and they're very vulnerable if they're on their own, or vulnerable to predation, especially from lions. What they have to do is to sort of find a new troop and then decorously place themselves on the outside of the troops. And, That's me. Uh, but not 
not making a nuisance of themselves. And then they have to suss out who's the alpha female and then try to suck up to her. And, you know, say, oh, what a lovely baby. And then this is well, how they get entry into the field, uh, into the group. So in this particular instance, there was this kind of brash young bachelor baboon. He comes to the tube, you know, it's me, fellas, you know, I'm here. And he kind of marches around and makes an ass of himself. He kind of charges at the alpha male a couple of times. Two days later, Sapolsky comes back in the morning. He finds this guy in pieces, right? Bits of him, dead. So it's a very, and almost certainly the, the males, alpha and below, had to cooperate in order to do it. Within baboon society, there are matrilines, because it is a matrilineal society. And everybody in the group knows which is the dominant matriline and who is exactly where within the matriline, and so on for up to five. How they interact with each other depends on what matriline you're in and who it is you're interacting with. And they keep track of it all. And they do punish one another for misbehavior, uh, dissing one another, I suppose, uh, across <coughs> natural lines. In a very recent paper, Sam Bowles and, and Rob Boyd have argued also that, and this is essentially a mathematical model, not a field result, that when animals cooperate to uh, punish under varying conditions, um, that the cost, of course, is much less than if a single individual undertakes what is sometimes called um, altruistic punishment. And certainly that's seen, of course, in humans um, at, at all kinds of levels. Uh, so, and by and large, from the animal behavior studies, for example, on baboons and bonobos and chimpanzees, it, it doesn't look, I mean, it looks like the reward system is such that the animals know what is expected of them. And they are not really anxious to incur the cost. So let's put it this way, their amygdala will generate a fear response at the very idea of undertaking something uh, which is unacceptable. And so part of what I'm suggesting is that the, the seeds for what you might call conscience are already there, in, in, certainly in all large brain mammals, they're certainly there in dogs, where you can make intuitive, obvious and automatic to an animal a certain kind of behavior simply by tuning up the reward system. And it's very tunable for animals that are social like us because we want approval. We feel pain at disapproval, and uh, we can see this very easily, of course, in infants, but we see pain at disapproval and at shunning. And so I think much of the answer to why should I be moral, it's often given, namely, it just is the right thing to do, is this reward-tuned-up conscience, this bit of biology, uh, speaking. Okay, now I don't have too much time, so I want to finish with just a couple of uh, quick points. We've already, of course, talked about uh, in-group bonding and out-group hostility. The fact of the matter is we don't know very much about all this in the ancestral condition. 
and uh, it's, it's way, way too early in the evidence game to make too much out of the idea that because it's easy to get Stanford undergraduates playing prisoners to beat up on, the, uh, or playing guards to beat up on the prisoners, that it must have been that way in the ancestral condition. I mean, it may be that the capacity for aggression and hostility is there because we did a lot of hunting in the old days, and you need to be able to gird your loins to do something that is, after all, uh, kind of nasty in its way, although it can be very, um, can be very exhilarating uh, when, after a long struggle, the time comes and you actually manage to bash out the brains of a deer. All right. Um, so, so the enlarged prefrontal cortex probably does have some role in calculating and planning. It also clearly has an important role in reputation. Oops. Oh, I, I actually broke this. I'm so sorry. Oh, dear. Okay. Can I talk like this? Okay. Uh, and, and here, actually, Roger Bingham was one of the first people who I think really articulated the importance of reputation in social mammals and how um, the hippocampus, although very important for, for spatial knowledge, and, and homologous structures are important for spatial knowledge in non-mammals, uh, but that the hippocampus in social mammals might be particularly important <coughs> for remembering your own history so that you know about all those events and who you did what with and when and all that sort of stuff, but also so that you can remember that about other individuals. Um, okay. Um, now, I really want to finish up um, with uh, two fast comments. One is that, of course, after the advent of uh, the domestication of grasses and animals, there was the expansion and of, of human groups, and we've talked about that. Hume was one of the people, but again, Arist it's there at Aristotle too, who said, look, you know, when groups get big, what happens is that the trust that used to be enforced simply because we knew one another <coughs> And you wouldn't want my big brother to beat the crap out of you for you know, doing X, and so you don't. Uh, that trust and enforcement gets handed over to institutions where we trust those institutions, like banks and trading centers and guilds and whatnot, for doing some of the policing. And so we put our trust in those institutions rather than individuals uh, that we know personally. And the question about whether or not trust would be affected, that is the capacity to trust people you don't know very well, or in fact people who are total strangers, would that be affected by uh, a background experience of interacting usefully with strangers in a trading context? And uh, so Joseph Heinrich from University of British Columbia in Vancouver undertook this huge experiment where he played a neuroeconomic game, game with a ton of folks uh, from a variety of very, very different kinds of cultures, where the relevant index is what he called market integration, by which he meant how much of their food resources come from trading with others. 
So roughly speaking, you have those who are high market integrated and those who aren't. And those who aren't do pretty much their own hunting and gathering and they are not dependent on others, they don't trade with others, they don't do much of uh, uh, socializing beyond the group. The basic finding was that trust levels in the trust game are significantly higher for those with high market integration and a lot lower for those who are not used to uh, those kinds of institutions where they know um, that they can uh, have trust and expect trust. Okay, last, last quick point. So this looks like it's coming from a completely different field. I wish I could just get rid of this thing. Anyway, um, so one of the things that social psychologists have, have discovered is that we all engage in this behavior called unconscious mimicry. And it's unconscious because we don't know we do it. But when I meet Julian for the first time, and we sit down and we're working on something having to do with the program, It'll, it will turn out that we imitate each other in, in low-level ways. He'll go like this, and so will I. And he'll scratch, and then so will I. And he'll cross his legs, and a couple seconds later, I do too. Now, I'm not doing this consciously, and he doesn't notice it. So, so what's interesting about this? Okay, very quickly, here are the data. When a confederate and an undergraduate are put into a room and the confederate mimics the undergraduate as they're working on a project, and the undergraduate is then asked to say something about the guy she worked with, she'll say things like, oh yeah, well, he, he was, if, if he mimicked her, oh yeah, he was really great, I mean, I felt like, you know, we were really simpatico, uh, and, but if he didn't, here's what they said. Well, you know, I mean, I don't really want to diss the guy, but I thought he was kind of creepy, and, <laughs> and so forth. Behaviorally, it shows up in the following way. In the mimicked condition, if pencils are dropped as the undergraduate's about to leave, the student tends to pick them up. If they were not mimicked, they tend not to. So we were interested in this phenomenon. Why do brains do this? Why do they put out, I mean, every time the, the, the brain is putting out a lot of energy, we want to know why. So the hypothesis is that there's something important about mimicry. It's a signal, but why is it a signal? What is it telling us? Why is it that we like something? What good is it for me to think that because he mimicked me, I like him, albeit at an unconscious level? And the hypothesis that we are working on, uh, we at, at UC San Diego, is that in the very young, imitation, the capacity of an infant to imitate, is a sign, a very powerful sign of a normal social brain. If your infant is not imitating by six to nine months, every parent knows that there is something seriously amiss. Um, in, uh, in friends, or in kith, it predicts kin-like and kin-like behavior. It's like, oh, you're like me, and since I care, my brain cares tremendously about predicting, and since probably the most dangerous things I will ever encounter in my life are other humans, I care a lot about being able to predict your behavior. If we live in small groups, 
And I draw upon this because living in the bush in a s small village where, you know, odd people used to come by for work and this and that. If the person wants to enter the group and they don't mimic in the normal way, people say things like, well, he's kind of strange. I don't think we should, you know, give him a job. I don't think, you know, he doesn't really belong here and so forth. So this is the hypothesis, that it isn't just there for no reason at all, but that it really does have something important to do with my being able to get a first-pass take on your social brain. Are you enough like me for me to think that I can lower my guard a little bit and take you as being not too dangerous? Now, of course, full membership, as it were, will require a lot more. You'll have to prove your loyalty and this and that and the other thing. But as a first-pass filter, we think that mimicry is playing an important role. So that's the, the, the last slide. That has to do with the experimental part of the research. Um, there is a huge amount of background having to do with giving humans oxytocin and so forth that I haven't talked about. Um, but that might come out in the discussion or not. Okay, thanks. Okay, we're going to have a uh, short response from Julian Savalescu and then before we open the discussion. Okay, so um, I just want to ask one broad question and then I'll flesh it out and give it a context. So the short version of the question is, what capacity do you think there is and will be for intervening and changing our biology to influence behaviour, well-being, whatever the outcome is? And to give you the background, um, you, you mentioned this very nicely when you mentioned culture and, and ecologies, but to flesh that out a little bit, there are, there are four ways essentially that you can influence somebody's well-being, you can influence um, social justice or the state of groups of people and that's to change the natural environment, the amount of resources as you said, change society, the social institutions that we have, change people's psychology or change their biology. And as you mentioned, um, of course we can change culture uh, but the question that we're interested in in our program is what role could changing biology play uh, in this equation? We're very interested, as, and you gave a very nice story, about our nature as animals, as animals that have evolved with a certain history and with a certain primitive morality that is based on that evolutionary history and the limitations that that biology places in terms of dealing with personal and social problems today. So just to sketch one application of this, um, nearly 50% of marriages, somewhere between 30 to 50% of marriages, end in divorce. It's a very nice evolutionary explanation for why we might expect this based on our biology and our, our um, environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. Essentially, humans hardly ever through most of their human history stayed with their mate for more than 7 to 10 years. And you mentioned some of the very interesting work around oxytocin and, and the vols. One thing that you didn't mention, which, because you didn't have time, is that there is some, some interesting preliminary work that has it's contested but shows that similar changes occur in human beings. There is a, an AVPR1A receptor gene um, that regulates the sensitivity to vasopressin in humans 
and there is a, an allele called the 331 allele. If you have two copies of this allele, it um, is associated with higher frequency of uh, breakup of relationships, less dyadic consensus, uh, less happiness in terms of your, your partner's satisfaction with the relationship, etc. It, it looks a little bit like the, the behaviour or the structure of the polygamous uh, Montaigne vole. Now, even if that's not the case, it is clear that by manipulating uh, the biology associated with pair bonding, we may well be able to influence that. So the first question is, how much capacity do you think we have to actually intervene in our own biology, for example, to promote pair bonding? Of course, there's targeted social or external interventions that you talked a lot about in terms of um, changing our environment or behaviour based on our understanding of biology. But we're also interested in exactly how much we could intervene in our biology to promote those sorts of goals. So if you do want to stay with your partner, you can of course get them to give you a rub, have sexual intercourse, all of those things release oxytocin, but you can also take nasal spray of oxytocin. Um, <laughs> the, the more profound point, and I'll finish now with the second one, which I think is much more serious and important. We're in the 21st century school here, and one of the, the sort of big issues of the 21st century school, or the great challenges of the 21st century, we are at a point in human history that is profoundly different to all other points uh, through human history. Because at this point, technology is exponentially increasing. In, in, the, in the 1950s and 60s, for the first time, we had the capacity to deliberately wipe out humanity through the deployment of nuclear weapons, but only a handful of people had access to those weapons. Richard Posner estimates there is enough fissile material floating around the world outside of the former Soviet Union to make 20,000 atomic bombs. Um, scientists have synthesised biological um, interventions that would easily create biological superweapons that, that could make smallpox three times more lethal and, and easily eradicate humanity. These are, they, these are technologies that not just a handful of people today will hold, but hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So on the one hand, we have means of our destruction. The second major point that, that characterises our state of the world that is profoundly different is that many of the problems that result from technology and globalisation occur at a global level that require huge amounts of cooperation. Now, you mentioned very nicely the story of the evolution of concern from self to self plus kin to self plus kith and kin. Robin Dunbar mentioned, Robin Dunbar mentioned the Dunbar number of 150. Well, today, problems like global warming and these global um, problems require cooperation and a set of dispositions that are simply not built into our nature. Um, you mentioned Hume and the transfer of trust to, to, other, um, to other institutions. In, in fact, Hume recognised the limits of our ability to cooperate. We tend to free ride. We will all row in a rowboat when we can see each other, but if one, because one person is not rowing, you'll, you'll notice the boat goes in circles. But as Hume noted, but when you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of people, your contribution becomes insignificant. You have a great tendency to free wide. You have a great tendency to be xenophobic. You have a great tendency to ostracise and be intolerant to outgroups. This is a fundamental aspect of our, of our evolved nature. So while it's encouraging that, that experience with trading um, may increase people's pro-social behaviour, it's simply not going to be enough to solve the problem. Um, Americans value the life of a non-American one two thousandth that of an American. Um, people are in naturally xenophobic and distrustful of strangers. Their tendency to, to the ability to cooperate is very limited. So you didn't talk about the, 
the, um, the economic cooperative games and the influence of oxytocin and serotonin and so on, how much do you think an understanding of our biology will not just provide us with social interventions like experience of trading that will promote and deal with these problems, how much do you think there is the ability for us to intervene strategically in our own biology and influence our behaviour for the better? Thank you, Julie. Do you want to pick yeah. this last page? Yeah, I mean, those are really beautiful questions. So um, let, let me just say a couple of things. I don't think at the moment that the probability of doing something really significant on a, on a real scale with oxytocin is plausible for a couple of reasons. Um, one is the half-life is really, really short. Right? You're only, you only get this effect for a couple minutes. So, so that's thing one. Um, and even in the best results in the trust game where Ernst Fair administers um, oxytocin intranasally, you do get an effect, and it is a significant effect, but it isn't a, what you'd call a whopping effect. Uh, so, and the other thing that, that is just kind of cautionary here is that oxytocin is a very powerful hormone. There's a huge amount that we have no idea about. But here's what we do know. So Sue Carter in her lab um, asked the question, so suppose you take a normal lady vole attached to her mate and sort of living a happy vole life and what you do is you give her extra oxytocin. <coughs> what happens? Here's what happens. She ceases to care very much about her mate, takes off and goes into estrus. Well, what's with that? Well, part of what we know about many aspects of neurochemistry and, uh, and the brain is that there is the inverted U. Things are fine, right, at the optimal amount. Things are not fine when there's too little, but they're also not fine when there's too much. I mean, Mae West said uh, too much of a good thing is wonderful, but that's not always true. And um, so, so the thing of, of, uh, about oxytocin is, for example, I would not feel really happy about giving oxytocin to undergraduates. These are still developing humans, still developing brains. Uh, what do we know about young women who get uh, an intranasal shot of oxytocin just so somebody can find out how that affects what goes on in the trust game? I mean, I'm not saying that research should stop. I'm saying it's very important to realize that this is not to be taken lightly, that this is a tremendously important hormone. Vasopressin and oxytocin play a role in heart function, in lung function, in the gut, in mobility, in all kinds of things that happen outside the brain. And the fact of the matter is we don't really even know what it does in the brain. So. I think it's just way, I mean, I don't, I, I know I'm sounding like an old bat at this point because I, I'm not really sort of, you know, pro-technology, pro but I think you have to be tremendously careful with these kinds of direct interventions.